Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded as part of the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. My guest today is Dr. Craig Coopersmith, MD, FCCM. He's a professor of surgery at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. He's also the associate director of the Emory Center for Critical Care. Uh, He's going to be working with us today to talk about both his involvement with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, as well as a couple of his recent important research publications uh, published in Critical Care Medicine. He is also on Council of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the immediate past chair of the surgery section. Thank you so much. I know you're very busy, and I'm, I'm really grateful to have a chance to speak to you in person like this. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I thought I'd let you begin uh, to help share with the members who, who may not particularly be involved with SCCM some of your stories about how you initially got involved, both joining as a member, but but more importantly, I think, involved in committees and, and maybe teach a little bit about learning how the structure of SCCM works, your involvement with the surgical section, et cetera. I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. So I got involved through, like many people, through mentorship. Uh, my direct mentor back when I was at Washington University and still at Emory University is uh, Tim Buckman, who is now one of the past presidents of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And he told me when I was a fellow under him that this organization is everything that one thinks of when one thinks of multidisciplinary, multi-professional uh, critical care. And he said, this is this is the dream. This is everything that we do for a living. You have to join. And it's, it's okay to join, but you really want to get involved and get involved as early as you can. And so I took that to heart. The society supported me almost immediately when I was, uh, I think when I was a fellow, I applied for the, at the time it was called the Founders Grant, it's not called the Vision Grant, and was remarkably fortunate to uh, get get funding with the Founders Grant when I was a fellow. So when I started out on faculty, immediately had uh, funding to pursue laboratory research. And really that's led to over a decade of continuous NIH funding and an entire research career, which I can in large part thank the society for. And in a desire to give back and in a desire to get more involved, I started volunteering for committees. I was very rapidly put upon the research committee based upon my uh, getting the grant and progressed in that and was fortunate enough to be named the chair of the research committee. Uh, Around this time, by sort of volunteering and doing a lot of work, I got put onto the program committee as well and fairly rapidly made my way up that to the chair of the program committee. And the society was kind enough to run me for council um, after chairing two or three different committees and a a bunch of other task force, which we don't have time to get into. And I was fortunate to get elected to the designated surgery seat, which was vacated when our now president, Pam Lipset, uh, ascended to executive committee. And I took over as the designated surgery seat, and I'm finishing up my second term now. And so your involvement with the with the surgical section, maybe if you could talk a little bit more, more about that in terms of uh, what it does, how does it help the average member who is a surgeon? Well, 
the sections in SCCM are an interesting thing because, of course, we're a hybrid between a multidisciplinary, multi-professional organization, but we are made up of people with specialties outside of critical care medicine, at least some. Uh, generally, for an MD to go into critical care medicine, they have to have some type of specialty training first, either in surgery or anesthesiology or internal medicine or pediatrics or neurology. And so for people who are like-minded, people who are trained in surgery, who are specifically interested in surgical critical care, the surgery section is a fantastic way to get involved. Uh, it's it's large. It's about 1,500 people, but it's not as large as SCCM, which is 15,000 people. And there's multiple committees within the section which one can get involved with. And I did it a little bit backwards for most people. I was generally involved in society-wide committees before I was involved in surgical section committees, and that really had to do with the society uh, giving me the founder's grant so early on and getting onto the research committee, so I did it a little bit backwards. But really, in addition to SCCM being the home, uh, the surgical section is my home as well, and I certainly wanted to get involved, and I had numerous role models in the surgical section, uh, Tim Buckman being the greatest, but uh, a whole host of past presidents and past chairs uh, who really have mentored me over the years, and they encouraged me to get involved, and I did, and I made my way up to the committee structure for, to being secretary-treasurer and then chair-elect, and I just finished my year as chair today. And we do an awful lot of things uh, that are really specific with to surgical critical care. Obviously, the entire goal behind the organization is multi-professional, multidisciplinary care. Um, and while celebrating our sameness, there's also times that we can slightly celebrate our differences as well, um, going with our subspecialty training. And there's some differences between surgical critical care and, say, pulmonary critical care. Although what we do is 90 to 95% similar, our patient populations are different. And this is an opportunity for people with similar training um, to really get involved, both from a social networking standpoint and a volunteering standpoint. There's a membership committee to get surgeons who are not an SCCM to be members of the surgical section. There's an education committee where we do an awful lot of education. And some of it goes to section dependent, and a lot of surgeons are very involved society-wide as well. And the surgeons, um, the surgeons have done a lot for education in the society. And we've just finished putting together over the past year a white paper to define the specialty of surgical critical care uh, because it is a relatively unusual specialty in the, in the field of surgery where people go into very specifically because they're interested in operating. When one's a surgical intensivist in the ICU, they're not operating. They're being a full-time critical care professional. And it's a little difficult to get our messages out to our surgical colleagues Currently, our critical care-like colleagues understand what we do, but sometimes our surgical colleagues don't understand very well what we do for a living, and getting the message out and sort of defining ourselves. And so it's a great way to move ahead in the surgical section and network with colleagues and also get involved in the society as a whole. And then I was just going to ask you, your involvement in the research committee would be uh, people would submit to receive the grants and you would triage them, or, or is that not what, what, what were the kinds of activities you were involved in? Well, there was, there was more than one thing. Probably the biggest activity of the research committee is giving out um, the society's uh, largest grant, which is now called the Vision Grant. Actually, when I was chair is when we changed the name to the Vision Grant. The Founders Grant was something which was certainly great and honored the founders of SCCM, but we wanted people to understand what we were actually funding. We were trying to do things that were specifically aligning with the strategic mission of SCCM, and that's the vision of SCCM. So the, the largest thing that the research committee does is, in fact, judge the all the grants, all the applications that we get and determine which is the um, best application to fund. In addition, all the surveys that go out as blast surveys to the society are reviewed prior to going to council by the research committee to determine whether they are of appropriate quality to send out to the society's membership. Certainly, we want to be as inclusive as possible and let 
people proceed with research because we have an, an opportunity to send it out to 15,000 members. At the same time, we want to make sure that the, this, the research that's being done by society members that's going out to the entire society in a blast email is of a sufficient quality. In addition, we've had various strategic planning initiatives. This year, there's a, a session at the Congress to have the previous Vision Grant members present their work. In addition, we had a sort of an offshoot of a task force, which should be coming to fruition very shortly, actually, although it's five or six years in the making, uh, where we asked a, what we considered to be a very important question, which was if the burden of, excuse me, if the amount of um, funding that critical care gets from the NIH is commensurate with the actual financial burden of critical care in the United States, and that might sound like an easy question, but it was not to go through 19,000 grants to ultimately figure out how many grants the NIH funds that are related to critical care, and also to figure out what the financial burden of critical care is. And we've actually just sent off a draft this week uh, that's, I think, six years in the making uh, that we hope will make a fairly big splash in the future, so perhaps you can have me back to talk about that, that we can really, this will be the first time a lot of people have a an anecdotal belief about how much the government funds critical care versus how much critical care really costs. And this is, I really think, the first time that we've been able to get tangible data on that. Excellent. Well, I, I thought we would use that as a, a segue into into your basic science research. So you have remained a, uh, as you said, a, a funded basic science researcher for the last decade or so. And I was wondering, uh, before we go into your individual papers, maybe uh, talk a little bit about your areas of research. Um, so I study many things related to uh, sepsis. I guess if one wanted to put it into a single bullet point, we study the role of gut apoptosis or programmed cell death or cell suicide uh, in sepsis. Uh, the laboratory also has a very significant interest in aging and sepsis. Uh, the laboratory also has an interest in comorbidities in sepsis, in animal models of sepsis, of the host response of interactions between the gut and the immune system. And recently, although we won't be talking about it today, um, an interest in what's called radiation combined injury, which is a combination of sort of radiation and sepsis. What would happen if there were, God forbid, a dirty bomb followed by a common infection like a su- what we call a superbug? And um, uh, two questions. One is sort of uh, how many people are in your lab? And, and I know you said you recently moved. And how do you, do you take everybody in your lab with you? Or, or do you offer that? Or, or how does that all work? Um, I didn't take anybody with me, wow. uh, which made it challenging. Uh, before we made the decision to move from Washington University to Emory, I made sure that everybody would have a home. Um, surgery residents went back into the clinics, uh, although one of them continued research long distance with me for a year, and we would Skype each other every week. She would do the experiments long distance, and we would talk to each other every week, and she'll end up with the same number of publications. Other people went back into the clinics. Um, a PhD postdoc that I had, we got a faculty position well, she had a faculty position at WashU lined up, and she decided to leave, and she's now a faculty at um, Colorado. Somebody else got into PA school. So everybody had a home, uh, which was great. The challenging thing was I didn't have anybody to take with me, um, and so I had hired somebody at Emory. She came up to learn from the people in my lab, and uh, we've been slowly growing the lab. My, my lab, to me, the perfect number for me is four people because uh, there's something to me called subtraction by addition because if I get above a certain number of people, I don't feel like it can be an appropriate mentor to them. And mentoring in the lab is, to me, at least as important as the intellectual curiosity and the getting the science done. And above a certain level, I'm stretched so thin that I can't actually do that. So to me, the optimal number of people in the lab is four. Uh, We had four when I was in St. Louis. I started at one for the first year at Emory, hired number two in November. Uh, Number three is coming on board in May. 
and we just got funded last week with an NIH training grant for the next five years. So I would hope that we'll be able to get a number four from that as well. Well, that's great. And and it's it's always fascinating to me. So and then you decide you need sort of because it's not a very large number of people, but you say I need sort of it would be best to have like one postdoc, maybe one full-time technician or something? How, how do you decide what, what your needs are? Um, I typically don't actually make a distinction. I always have a technician. I always have a lab manager, but I make it very clear to them when I hire them that I'm not hiring them specifically to be a technician. Uh, every person who's been my lab manager has presented at national meetings. Every one of them has presented at SCCM. Every one of them has presented at the Shock Society. Um, and I make it very clear to them that when I say I need a certain amount of lab ordering done, that they do that, but at the same time, they're not there just to do what I tell them to do, uh, which is a lot of times what a technician is supposed to be doing or just sort of run day-to-day maintenance. Um, Everybody is supposed to be intellectually involved. And so at any given time, we have four people. The assumption is they'll have two to four projects each. So we'll probably have 12 projects going on simultaneously with a whole bunch of balls sort of being juggled in the air. And that works well for me as a lab because if half of them don't work and half of them do work, well, I still have six projects that are working. I'll likely have a certain number of publications per year. I could tell the NIH we're being productive, and that leads to you know, more funding down the road and the ability to do more projects. And also for the individual person, if they have one project and that project doesn't pan out, then they haven't totally wasted their time because they certainly have the ability to learn from that. But I think generally people uh, like publishing, people like presenting at national meetings, and to give people multiple projects at the same time. If one of them hits and one of them doesn't, at least they have something that hits, and there's a way to move forward. And so... Uh, for me, the, the optimal number is four people, three to four projects each, and we always have balls juggling in the air. Um, and h- how do you work at, um, as a physician scientist? Do you assign a certain uh, day of the week that's for research, or does a certain week, uh, like a certain full week will be devoted to the research, or how do you do it? Well, when, my, when, I'm, when I'm attending in the ICU, I'm attending in the ICU, and that's a 13, 14-hour-a-day job plus getting called in the middle of the night. And there's really not time for science, although I still have everybody, I meet with everybody in the lab, but what they do is they're on my calendar for three or four straight days, and they call me at the assigned time, and they say, are you, are you free now? And if I say yes, they all come running over, and we have a sort of impromptu lab meeting. And if I say no, then they'll call me the next day, and we keep doing that, so we find some time to meet, even if it's not Tuesday, it might be Wednesday, it might be Thursday, but we always can find some time to meet. On my academic weeks, that's I have no clinical responsibilities, and that's when I juggle a combination of the lab and the administrative duties from being a unit director and being the associate director for the center and the societal duties to SCCM and, and writing other, and other things. And <laughs> writing as well. And it's just, and it's the fun thing in life in that one never gets bored because one day I'm a scientist, one day I'm an administrator, one day I'm a clinician, one day I'm all of them. Right. And so. I don't know that I'm terribly good at anything, but I'm reasonably good at multitasking and juggling a lot of balls in the air. No, I learned this on a, on a interviewing somebody similar to you, and these time management issues are, are not trivial in terms of making sure that uh, you're not letting people in the lab get too far off from where you think they are, those kind of things. No, important. and so we meet, we meet together as a lab for sure every single week, I mean, assuming that I'm in Atlanta. If not, we sort of meet by email. But there's an absolute guarantee that we will meet together as as a laboratory as a week where we will sort of meet all together to talk about big picture things that affect every one of us. And then small person, I'll break off with each individual and we'll sort of go over, okay, what have you done this week? What's your plan for next week? What's your plan for the next six months? What's your next plan for the year? So we have a combination of the real micro, I don't want to get lost, 
if this experiment didn't work, what am I doing? If this experiment did work, what am I doing next? But also the big picture, so people do stay on project to say, okay, how long will a project take to come to full fruition? So we have a combination of the big picture and the small picture each week, and everybody stays on task. So I thought we'd now talk about uh, a couple of your papers, and, and again, just big picture so that the members can, can learn a little about some of your important work. Uh, the first one I thought we'd talk about was uh, published this year in, uh, in March in Critical Care Medicine. The title was Cancer Causes Increased Mortality and is Associated with Altered Apoptosis in Murine Sepsis, um, and I'd let you uh, sort of take it from there. Well, the, the, the reason we did this project, the, the reason we do pretty much all the projects in the laboratory are, is twofold. Um, one is to understand the molecular underpinnings of sepsis, um, and at the same time to also try to translate what we see at the laboratory to the bedside. We've done a fairly remarkably poor job of actually translating, not us particular that we have, but pretty much the entire field of critical care has done a poor job of translating our findings at the bench uh, to the bedside. One can make an argument that in the year 2011, of the over 40 prospective randomized trials that have been done in patients, uh, not a single one is unequivocally positive. There are some that have been positive that are being restudied because people are not sure whether they're positive, but there's really not a single thing that we do in the ICU that we know unequivocally cures people. And so if one goes back to the bench and we say, well, why is that? I mean, some of it is because you're using a mouse, a mouse, and a mouse isn't a person, but that doesn't seem to be the problem for cancer or for heart disease, where certainly they have a much bigger hit rate on cures. And so a lot of what we try to figure out is, are mouse models applicable to people? So when we uh, do a mouse model of sepsis, what we typically do is we take a six-week-old mouse that has um, no comorbidities. And if one looks at a lifespan table, that's about the equivalent of an 11-year-old person uh, who's totally healthy. And if one looks at the data, 11-year-olds basically never get septic. And the incredibly rare patient who gets septic when they're 11 years old is incredibly unlikely to die. They have the lowest mortality even if they get septic. And so we're modeling not a group that does get septic, we're modeling a patient that doesn't get septic. And when we look at our patients in the ICU, what we're seeing are a combination of patients with significant comorbidities, or we're seeing a patient who is markedly aged, or at the extremes of age, very young. But again, I'm not a pediatric critical care person. And so that's where our interest in aging comes, and this is an interest that we had in comorbidities. And we said, well, we know for a fact that um, the single biggest risk factor for dying of sepsis is having uh, cancer. And there's data published by others that show that if you have non-metastatic cancer, you've got a mortality of 30% in the ICU. You've got metastatic cancer, you've got a 43% uh, chance of dying of sepsis in the ICU. And that's obviously clearly not the numbers for a typical patient. And nobody actually says, well, there are any differences about these patients. And so we said, well, what happened if we actually gave a mouse cancer and then made it septic to actually model what we see in our patients. And so we did exactly that. We gave a mouse model of basically a transplantable pancreatic cancer cell line, um, which is, and the reason we chose pancreatic cancer is because it actually has the highest mortality of any type of cancer in the ICU in terms of sepsis. Um, there has a rate of greater than 14,000 cases per 100,000 patients, and that's why we chose pancreatic cancer. We let the cancer develop three weeks later, and then we gave them pseudomonas pneumonia as a model of sepsis. And we saw what would happen. And the first thing we did is we said, well, does this mimic the human condition? One might expect if it mimics the human condition that the animals with cancer who then become septic would do worse than the animals without cancer who become septic. And that's in fact what we saw. The mortality was twice as high in the animal with cancer who then became septic. And that's exactly what we see in people. 
So we thought we had a good model at the time. And then we said, okay, why are we seeing this mortality difference? And so we're mimicking the human condition. And now we're saying, okay, we know this looks like people, but what's the difference? And so we looked at an awful lot of different things. And we only found differences in a couple of things. And I'll start to say that the cancer mice looked the same as the non-cancer mice before we made them septic. We thought that was important because if they looked very different to start with, then if you have differences afterwards, you don't know what to attribute it to, whether it's pre-existing conditions or whether it's due to the sepsis. And so we had mice that looked the same with cancer and without cancer before we made them septic, and then we made them septic, and we saw a greater than twofold difference in mortality. And we really only, although we looked at about 15 or 20 different endpoints, we really only saw a difference in three, and that was in apoptosis or programmed cell death, where we saw a marked increase in the gut and gut epithelial apoptosis in the mice with cancer. And that goes along with a large literature um, done from our lab or from others showing that gut apoptosis is disproportionately increased when one has more than one insult going on simultaneously. And that might be physiologically significant because we have mouse data that if you prevent gut apoptosis and sepsis, that can increase survival by two to tenfold. And actually, that's what we've been working on for the last decade. So that was perhaps not surprising, but encouraging that we might be on the right track. The but, next I, thing but I like this, and again, I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, I, sure. I like this because um, it's a confusing human literature, and, and I try to read a lot about this, the admitting the cancer patient to the ICU, that's a whole literature. And f as far as my reading of literature, there is some data to say that you shouldn't automatically not admit a patient because they have cancer to the ICU. But this kind of translation of literature that you're doing does go along with many of our clinical experiences that this patient coming in with this pre-existing bad diagnosis with a superimposed severe sepsis problem, it helps us when we're trying to speak with families and prognosticate about how this is going to go. And it's a, it's a I think it's a very important problem. That was one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you today. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. I mean, of course, that's what we're trying to model and yeah, thank, you for, thank you for the encouragement. The next thing we found was we looked at lymphocyte apoptosis, and here we found something the exact opposite of what we were expecting. So there is a much bigger literature on lymphocyte apoptosis than there is on gut apoptosis, really done by my scientific mentor back at Washington University, Richard Hotchkiss, um, and others, showing that there's marked increase in lymphocyte apoptosis and sepsis, and if you prevent that lymphocyte apoptosis by five to 10 different ways, there's a marked improvement in survival. And that sort of makes sense that if all your lymphocytes die, that you're susceptible to additional infections. And so we expected that if we gave a mouse cancer and then we made them septic, there'd be an increase in lymphocyte apoptosis. Uh, the first thing to mention is that even though the cancer mice and the regular mice before they were septic looked generally similar, the cancer mice actually had much less lymphocyte apoptosis than the regular mice. This was sort of unexpected. This isn't where the cancer is, but it, so they're already starting out lymphopenic, which to some degree makes sense. That probably makes them more likely to get infected. Then we made both of them septic, the cancer mice and the non-cancer mice, and we would expect a marked increase in apoptosis in both. And in fact, we did see a marked increase in apoptosis in both because sepsis induces lymphocyte apoptosis, but we did see a significant difference between the cancer mice and the previously healthy mice, and that the previously healthy mice had much higher levels of lymphocyte apoptosis than the cancer mice did. And that is entirely counterintuitive because we've learned historically for the last 10 years, there's a very robust literature 
suggesting that an increase in lymphocyte apoptosis is bad and lower levels are going to be good. And what we found here is the mice with cancer that had a twice as high mortality had half as much apoptosis, which was, again, directly contrary to what we found. And it's something that we're sort of vigorously pursuing right now because sometimes your most exciting finding is not the finding that you're expecting, but the finding that's exactly what you were not expecting. And the final thing that we found in terms of a difference was a difference in the ability to clear infection. And so each mice had pneumonia, both the cancer mice and the non-cancer mice got pneumonia. They cleared the pulmonary infection the same way. So there was no difference in the local infection when we looked at their uh, BIL fluid. But when we looked at their blood, there was a marked increase in pseudomonas in the blood in the mice with cancer. And that suggests that even though the animals could clear the local infection equivalently well, by the time it actually got to the systemic circulation, the mice with cancer, because of pre-existing or because of the combination of um, cancer plus sepsis, were markedly less able to clear their bacterial infection, and that might have led, to some degree, to their increase in mortality. Well, um, and I thought that actually is a great segue to your other paper that we're going to talk about today, um, which again is focusing in on infectious disease and sepsis. And um, I'm just reading in the title here now, Streptococcus pneumonia and Pseudomonas aeruginosa pneumonia induced distinct host responses. This was published in Critical Care Medicine, uh, 2010, volume 38, number one. Um, and again, I, I this was an important paper because you were trying to answer a lot of questions here, or at least ask a lot of different <laughs> questions. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'll sort of let you take it from there. Well, the the etiology behind this one, again, really gets, it gets a combination of animal modeling, but also how we do clinical trials in sepsis. And I'll be the first one to say that there are a tremendous amount of outstanding clinical trialists who are at this meeting today, and I am not one of them. But at the same time, when one reads the literature, very frequently, although this is changing to some degree in the last couple of years, the indication to enroll somebody in a a sepsis trial is that they are septic, um, typically less than 24 to 48 hours, and, you know, typically with some degree of organ dysfunction, but that's, that's the enrollee, they're septic. And when one takes a step back and they say, how does this relate to other diseases? If one thinks of cancer as the best analogy, nobody does a cancer trial when the enrolling the enrolling etiology would be cancer. Nobody says, well, you have breast cancer or colon cancer or prostate cancer, and okay, well, you have cancer, so I'll just enroll you and I'll try my chemotherapy drug on no matter what kind of cancer you have. And further, nobody would do that even within a type of cancer. Nobody would say, well, you've got stage one breast cancer or you've got widely metastatic stage four breast cancer, and so I'm going to assume that my drug is going to work equivalently independent of stage. And yet that's exactly what we generally do in sepsis which to some degree, I think all of us recognize doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but to some degree, there's actually a fair literature out there. There's actually something even called the generic septic response, which basically said it didn't really matter how you initiated the infection. Ultimately, you ended up with the generic response. And so we actually asked the question, is that true? This for the final, sort of a final common pathway. Correct. The, the, the big uh, vat of gasoline, the match has dropped in, and now there's a fire, and it doesn't matter how we got the match over there and things like that. It's, we've set it off. And that's, and that's exactly right. And, and my pre-hoc hypothesis was that that was probably not the case because if one thinks about it, on the most simplistic level, 
if one takes a gram positive organism versus a gram negative organism, and certainly don't, they don't signal, they're not all the same, but if one takes a gram positive and a gram negative, they're going to signal through different toll-like receptors. And they said there's a final common pathway. It says that nature has designed us to have different signaling pathways, but then, but then everything converges. Or we have pattern-associated molecular patterns, and that would be something that we would see from a bacteria, and we have danger-associated molecular patterns, and that would see by our endogenous tissue. And they, 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 um, they signal sometimes through different pathways. And again, nature would say, well, you've got multiple pathways to signal through, but at the end it doesn't matter because everything is going to converge. Or this is even like uh, in just clinical experience that patients with urosepsis tend to look better than patients that may have either abdominal or pulmonary sepsis. There's some data behind that in terms of even the same organism uh, infecting different parts of the body may have different outcomes. Absolutely. And you can also look at it from a, a different way. If you if you look at a septic patient in the ICU and they have gram-negative sepsis versus they have fungal sepsis, mm -hmm. um, the gram-negative uh, patient is much more likely to be profoundly um, hypotensive and in severe shock. And the fungal patient is much more likely to have the temperature of 41 or 42 degrees, but look fairly reasonably okay and say, wow, they have a temperature of 41 degrees and they look okay and they're not on 35 micrograms of norepinephrine. And so on some level, intellectually, this didn't square with me with this concept of the generic septic response. And we're not the first ones to study this. This has had some sort of mixed um, studies looking at circulating neutrophils and circulating various white blood cells in patients. But we sort of took this back to a mouse level. And what we did is we um, used two different uh, bacteria. And one of the bacteria we used a high dose and a low dose on to really look at this. So we used um, Pseudomonas and we used pneumococcus, and we used two different models of pseudomonas, a high dose and a lower dose. And what this allowed us to do was do three different comparisons uh, based upon the kinetics of mortality. Our high dose pseudomonas and our pneumococcus both had about an 80 to 90% seven-day mortality. And so that allowed us to look at mice and say, okay, if they're mostly going to die, there's going to be a few survivors, but they're mostly going to die, at seven days, are their host responses going to look the same? The next thing we did is we looked at the lower dose pseudomonas versus the pneumococcus because the pseudomonas mice die faster than the pneumococcus mice do. So the lower dose pseudomonas and the pneumococcus mice actually had a similar mortality at three days, even though downrange the lower dose pseudomonas would have a 50% mortality while the pneumococcus mice would have a closer to 90% mortality. And this allowed us to say at earlier time points when the mortality was the same, did kinetics of mortality make any difference? And the third thing we did is we were able to just compare the exact same bacteria in different doses, a higher dose pseudomonas versus a lower dose pseudomonas. And if there is such a thing as a generic bacterial or generic septic response, one might expect that when one looks for the host response, that it should make no difference whether an animal gets pseudomonas versus pneumococcus, and it should make no difference depending upon the dose, or if one says that it's, there's a generic septic response, but the only difference is how much bacteria you have in your body, then we should see a similar response downrange from pseudomonas and pneumococcus, and we should see a different response between the lower dose and the higher dose pseudomonas, with the higher dose having a more profound pro-inflammatory and potentially later anti-inflammatory response. And so we set that up to do pre-hoc those very three specific different um, comparisons to actually test in a fairly rigorous fashion. And what we did is 
we looked at 18 different cytokines, so we weren't looking at the entire genome. We looked at 18 different cytokines, both in the blood and BAL fluid, so we can actually see whether there was a compartmentalization component to this to see, based upon those three comparisons, was there a quote-unquote generic septic response, or was there something which was modifiable or reproducible between different types, even if the seven-day mortality was the same, even if the kinetics of mortality were the same, and even if the bug was the same, but the doses were different. And this was a, a, a pulmonary model of, of sepsis, correct? Correct. This is, a, this is a pneumonia model. So even though I do come from a surgical background, and I'd say probably 60 or 70% of the papers from my lab use the sequel ligation and puncture, which is more similar to ruptured diverticulitis or ruptured appendicitis. Um, we've done an awful lot of studies using pneumonia, and both of the things we've spoken about uh, today are using pneumonia, which in some senses I like better because it's probably a more reproducible model because CLP has a lot of interoper uh, interoperator variability. And, and I remember you, I was reading in your paper, one of your papers, that you can get some inflammatory response from just even in the sham models or something. Yeah, from so doing absolutely. Surgery. It's it's a it's a bigger, in a CLP, it's a bigger operation. You're doing a full laparotomy versus an intratracheal injection is a much um, smaller. So I, I tend to think of it as a cleaner model. And also because although we're not talking about the gut except briefly in the previous paper today, um, my lab probably studies, spends more time looking at the gut and apoptosis than anything else. And if one is looking at CLP, then one is having two problems because there's both a local problem because you're sticking a needle in the gut, and at the same time, you're really looking at the systemic response because sepsis, by definition, is a systemic response. And when I look at pneumonia, and every time I give a talk, I tell everybody the same thing, everybody raise your hand if you think of pneumonia as a gut disease. And of course, nobody raises their hand because everybody thinks of pneumonia as a pulmonary disease. But the truth is, almost nobody dies of hypoxemia. It's very, very, it's a few people do, you know, the people who have severe H1N1 who fail ECMO, but the vast majority of people who die of pneumonia aren't actually dying of hypoxemia. They're not dying of respiratory failure because we can all keep people alive on ventilators. They're dying of a multi-system organ failure. And so by the time the pneumonia is actually killing somebody, they're not dying just of the lung. They're dying of multi-organ failure, and that includes the gut. And so when we look at the intestine in an animal that we give pneumonia to, there's marked, marked, marked differences. And so because of that, we've tended to use the pneumonia model a lot, and that's what we used in this paper. And so what were, just in a, because we're sort of towards the end here, but what were some of the interesting uh, findings you found? Uh, simplistically, what we found is that there is no such thing as a generic um, septic response. There were multiple discrete types of host responses. Um, we did a fairly complex mathematical analysis on this that, uh, to be fair, my collaborators did because I don't, I, I don't have the capability of doing that, but we did. A, um, we ultimately found multiple discrete types of host responses, but they were dependent upon the absolute mortality, they were dependent upon the kinetics of mortality, and they were dependent upon the dose of bacteria used, but they weren't exactly in the way that you might think. It wasn't simply if we gave a higher dose that we would see a more profound inflammatory response. That certainly turned out not to be the case. It wasn't that if an animal had the same chance of dying at seven days that it died the same way. And it wasn't because the post responses were very different at six hours versus how they were in 48 hours. For instance, initially, the host response was much greater in the pseudomonas animals, and by 48 hours, it was much greater in the pneumococcus animals, despite the fact that all the animals were going to die in the same way. 
and 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 I mean, just backing one thing you said before. So simplistically, it wasn't that if you doubled the amount of bacteria you gave them, you either doubled the mortality or made them die at a faster rate. As though some of the well, that, no. If we no. if we doubled the amount of bacteria we gave them, they did have a higher chance of dying. Okay. But it wasn't that they had a double the inflammatory response I to get to dying. I see. Um, and so, it, it certainly stands to reason that the bigger your injury, the more likely you are to die. Um, it's not a totally linear thing because we didn't do a dose response here, but that, that does stand to reason. But the way you get there is not a linear big injury, big inflammatory response, bigger injury, bigger inflammatory response. And we were able to do this literally with just a monomicrobial infection, and we were able to say that it's not that simple, and it really looks like there are discrete host responses. And that ultimately to us would be one of the holy grails, if you will, of critical care is if we could say this patient isn't quote-unquote septic and let's treat them like every other septic patient. Let's say what is their host inflammatory response by a number of different mediators, parameters, and how would we target this individual host response with this medicine? So what they're starting to do again in cancer, they don't say I'm going to treat cancer. They say I'm going to treat stage two breast cancer, and then they look at the molecular fingerprint of it, and they say, okay, you will or will not respond to this medicine. It's something that I think we can do. We're not there yet, but it's something I think we can do in sepsis downrange. And I think the the benefit of this study is not so much saying that Pseudomonas and Pneumococcus have different responses, that different doses of bacteria have different responses, although I think there's a lot of interesting details in the paper specifically getting at that. It's really more of the big picture of there are discrete host responses they might not necessarily be well they're certainly not necessarily what we would be what they would expect they do not necessarily go with the amount of bacteria that is in the lungs or in the blood uh, in fact they very clearly do not track that and so moving forward if we can figure out how to identify a discrete host response and target that discrete host response in a sort of personalized medicine type way we would have rather than doing a prospective randomized trial on all septic patients, which turns out to be negative, even though quite possibly the drug would have worked, what it could possibly have done is if they improved. had this particular uh, uh, this particular fingerprint of uh, molecular markers that you've looked at, if they meet this this and this criteria, they respond to this drug. That kind of thing, right? Exactly right. So it's possible you do a negative trial, and it turns out that in actuality, the drug really made an improvement on thirty percent of the people. But there was 30% of the people who had actually killed and 30% of the people who had made no difference. That would come out as a negative trial with no difference, but we have no way of knowing up front. And if we could actually figure out who are those 30% who it helps, it would be a huge help and not give it to the 30% that it would kill. And that's being simplistic, of course. But rather than enrolling all septic patients, it would be equivalent. One does studies in, fa- in uh, stage two breast cancer. One doesn't do trials in cancer. And I was just going to ask you to conclude, you emphasize this concept of compartmentalization a lot in, in both of these manuscripts, and I was wondering if you could just sort of conclude by, by sharing with the members a little bit of your thoughts about why is that such an important concept to understand when doing this kind of research? Um, I think it's important to, ultimately, sepsis is a systemic disease. There's no question about that. It affects effectively every organ in the body and every different place in the body, but there's not a single boom response that it goes from your head to your toe. And it really is important in my mind to understand that 
how portion A of your body is responding is not the same as how portion B of your body is responding. They're assuredly interacting with each other, but they're not the same. And so if you're doing, if you're giving a drug and you say this is going to affect one thing, that's true, but it might have markedly unintended consequences somewhere else. So it's not just that we have to worry about the timing of when we give something because you might be in a hypo or hyperinflammatory state at one hour versus 24 hours versus five days, but different parts of your body might be simultaneously in a hypo or hyperinflammatory state. And we really have a fair way to go. You know, one of the challenges and one of the opportunities about understanding sepsis, unlike a disease like cancer, which is tends to be more localized, is that it really does affect everywhere. And it affects everywhere on a very, very short time frame that from point A to point B, it can be drastically different across the body. It can be drastically different in each compartment of the body. And while if one was a nihilist, one would say, we're just really beginning to scratch the surface in understanding this. I would say, on the other hand, if one looked at our understanding of the uh, molecular underpinnings and physiologic underpinnings of sepsis 20 years ago uh, versus now, it's remarkable um, the strides that we made. And to bring it to the close, the little, little piece that I've been able to um, contribute in large part is due to SCCM being willing to take a chance on a fellow who nobody had ever heard of back in 1999 or 2000. I've been speaking today with a true inspirational Renaissance man. Uh, we've been speaking with Dr. Craig Cooper-Smith, MD, FCCM. He's a professor of surgery at Emory, and um, he's been speaking with me about being a clinician, begun, being involved with your National Medical Society, and being a scientist. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Videos containing both slides and lectures from our courses are available 45 days after the live event. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are now available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.